the Jewish views on the Western Wall. In a contrast to recent reports, the egalitarian area is to be expanded, but just who has the right idea? Tisha B'Av, the annual day of mourning is approaching, Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence reminds us of its significance. And H. Foreman and Son, as the UK's oldest smoked salmon factory is given protected status, we hear from owner Lance Foreman. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A man brandishing two knives outside a Hendon synagogue last Saturday during morning services sparked security fears. Toras Chaimshul went into lockdown because it was assumed at first to be terrorist related. A CST trained security officer and a guard were praised for their bravery as they made sure congregants who were outside went into the building and then tried to engage with the suspect. Scotland Yard later confirmed that the man was detained under the Mental Health Act. The senior leader of the SNP Sephardi community can stay in his job after a ruling by the Chief Rabbi's Review Committee. Rabbi Joseph Dweck must, though, step aside from his position as a dayan on the Sephardi Beth Din, following the controversy that ensued after he gave a lecture on the Torah and homosexuality. Rabbi Dweck has expressed regret for speaking in an inappropriate and imprudent manner. Plans to expand Hasmonean High School are under threat after the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, overturned Barnet Council's decision to grant planning permission. The Mayor expressed concern about the impact on Greenbelt land. He said he might be minded to review his decision if a revised application was submitted. Under the plan, the boys' school in Hendon would move to join up with the girls in Mill Hill. Rabbi David Meyer, a former head of Hasmonean and now executive director of Partnerships for Jewish Schools, called the mayor's decision very disappointing. A new report by the World Health Organization says babies who were born in Israel in 2015 have the sixth highest life expectancy and can expect to live to 82 and a half years. Israel narrowly missed out on a top five slot in the table, in which Japan came first with almost 84 years. The UK, by contrast, came in at number 20, but with a life expectancy of a fairly respectable 81 years. And finally, the list released by the BBC of its top-earning talent has revealed that Strictly Come Dancing host Claudia Winkleman is the corporation's highest-earning female star, who's on between £450 and £499,000 a year. Other Jewish stars on the list include Vanessa Feltz, who's earning 350000 to 400000 and Alan Yentop, who scrapes by on a little less, 200000 to £250,000. And that's the news. I'm off to get a tenner from my nearest ATM machine. Here's the sport with Andrew. Thank you very much, Viv. Team GB manager Joel Nathan praised the spirit of this year's Maccabea squad, saying they were a special group who did themselves proud. The delegation have arrived back in England having won 36 medals, with Nathan saying they should wear them with pride. Not many people can say they won a Maccabea medal. Elsewhere, Israeli champions Hapa El Besheva are just two wins away from reaching the group stage of next season's Champions League. Beating Hungarian side Honved 3-2 on Wednesday night to secure a 5-3 aggregate win, they next face Bulgarian champions Ludogrets. And finally, it was a case of double delight for Israeli javelin thrower Maharita Dorazon, 
who not only won the women's competition at the Maccabiah, but in doing so, also qualified for the World Athletics Championships in London next month. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views, sponsored by Little Big Leaders. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Let us start off by looking at the story on the front page. And it's a tale of two stories, actually. We've got the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, as they go around their tour of Europe still. It's our duty to learn Shoah lessons is the title. That's right. This is the visit of, as you say, William and Kate to the Strutov concentration camp in Poland. It was the first camp actually set up outside German borders by the Nazis. And I think the significance of this visit, and they were joined by two British survivors who also were returning to that camp for the very first time, Usually we hear about people visiting, high-profile people visiting uh, Auschwitz and touring the the camp there. But the fact that they're going here and shining a light on Strutov as another site of Nazi depravity, I think is very significant. I think it's a very clever move, very important move that, that shows people, and particularly young people who may be influenced by seeing these pictures of the very popular royals at the camp, it really shows the the extent of the Holocaust, that it, that it goes beyond this famous camp that was Auschwitz. It's true, actually, because I don't know whether or not there's even that many Jews listening now in this day and age who would be that overly familiar with Strutoff and what happened there. I mean, obviously, I think we've got a rough idea of what happened there, but just knowing about its existence... Absolutely. And I I think as well, also, the point has to be made that as the years do go on, Holocaust survivors are sadly dying out and we are losing a generation. And so if we can have high profile royals visiting sites like this and showing the world that the Holocaust did extend outside of Auschwitz, and beyond the film Schindler's List, that, you know, the younger generations can actually learn more about the Holocaust and feel connected to it in a way that I think, sadly, we're going to, we're going to lose that sort of first-person connection soon, aren't we? Over the course of the next few decades, survivors will die out and we will be left with with sites like this to visit and we, we need to find a way to get younger generations and the next generations to connect with the shower. Certainly do. And of course, it was demonstrated so beautifully last week when we were learning about the Forever Project by the National Holocaust Centre. OK, well, that's one story on the front page. The other story, the headline reads, Mayor Block's Hasmo Plan. This is obviously the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and the plans to extend Hasmonean School. Yeah, many listeners will remember back in January, the planning committee of Barnet Council passed very narrowly by just six votes to five, gave the green light to the extension of Hasmonean and the move of the boys' school onto the current girls' school site. The significance being, beyond that school itself, is that it was going to create an extra 300 places, increasing the the capacity across the two schools to 1,400 places. In light of the shortage of Jewish secondary school places that we've written so much about in recent years, that was going to hopefully ease that particular burden. The Mayor of London has now intervened here 
people may be surprised that the Mayor of London gets involved in such a relatively small decision, you know, on the scale of the London decisions he has to take. But the reason is that the agreement by Barnet Council meant some building on Greenbelt land and so automatically passed to the Mayor of London for his green light and he's decided that he's not going to give it, that he's going to instruct Barnet Council in fact to refuse planning permission and to overturn that decision of the planning committee. There is now concern about the impact this will have on the number of school places uh, in the coming years. There seems to be a couple of issues raised from this particular story though Fran isn't there because obviously the first one being is the mayor of London getting involved in the expansion of a Jewish school therefore understandably listeners at first sight are going to think my goodness me what on earth is the mayor of London doing blocking plans to expand a Jewish school however when you start looking at it a little more in depth and you realize that actually the green belt is under threat here would we react any differently if we thought that some other building project was going to affect Greenbelt land. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think you're right. There probably is a bit of sort of double standards, if I can say that. I think our listeners will probably feel absolutely this. these plans should go ahead. You know, we need to expand our Jewish schools. We need to create more spaces for... Jewish pupils there's going to be you know we will face a crisis in years to come if we can't find enough secondary school places for them on the other hand how many people have raised their arms up and said oh you can't build on green belts you know the new housing projects we all need housing but you can't build on the green belt so I think on some level yes absolutely we do agree why this has perhaps been overturned. My personal feeling is it will go through. It will go through, but it will probably have to be changed in some way. And unfortunately, it's not going to happen in the timescale that Hasmonean would like it to. It should also be noted that the mayor, in his letter to the council this week, made it very clear that he'd be minded to change his mind should the school come back with a revised proposal that minimises the impacts on Greenbelt land and and also takes into account transport, uh, sustainable transport options for the school. So there is hope still that this could go ahead in some capacity. I think so. A fair summation is that this is not a clear-cut story, so definitely there are many factors involved in this. Let us have a look at one of the other stories that has been rolling on for the last few weeks. I should imagine much to the dismay of Rabbi Joseph Dweck, of course, the head of the S&P Sephardi community. He has now been told, though, that he can stay in the position. Yeah, this is a very significant story, obviously, for the community. As you say, it's been rumbling on for a while. And as I understood, this could have gone either way. I mean, there there was a realistic chance, a genuine chance that Rabbi Dweck could have emerged with this from this without his job as head of the Spanish and Portuguese. You'll remember that a few weeks back, the chief rabbi took on a role to kind of mediate here and to try and find a conclusion that would satisfy as many people as possible. Obviously, both sides had their views strongly expressed. Chief rabbi put together a panel and they've now decided that he can stay on. That's with a couple of caveats. He's got to, from now on, give his sermons ahead of them being delivered to a member of this committee that was put together by the chief rabbi. He's also released what can only be described as a a fulsome and wholesome mea culpa in which he expresses regret for some of the imprudent and inappropriate things he said, the style perhaps that he's spoken in in the past. I think it's very important to note, though, with this story, that this all began with a lecture he gave on homosexuality, one which basically said that the revolution and the acceptance of homosexuality was a great thing for the world and for the community. 
That was only the start of this, though. After that, many other comments emerged of his halakhic rulings around Shabbat and many other issues. And it was actually those that formed the basis and and the, the greatest concern that led to this whole process. Well, from a leader in the Jewish community, let's go to a leader in the world of music. There was no segue, was there, really? There really wasn't. I didn't know how on earth I was going to segue from Rabbi Joseph Dweck into Honey G, but I've tried and have evidently failed. So, Fran, you've been meeting with Honey G, and what words of wisdom has she delivered this time? Honey G is back. Oh, yes, she is. Oh, do you mean that she actually did go away for a time? Well, we may have forgotten about her a little bit, but she is back. She's launched her own label and she's launched off her new label. She's now got a new single out, Hit You With The Honey G. You can watch the video as well. It's on YouTube and it's on our website. Yes, that's jewishnews.co.uk as opposed to jewishviews.co.uk, I should point out. And she is also there. She's back with her baseball cap and her medallions and all her honeys around her. And quite sort of, it's a bit Twin Peaks-esque, actually. There's double decker buses and horses and fast cars and all kinds of things going on. Interestingly, she doesn't have shade. She has clear glasses now. So you actually see her eyes. But all that aside, yes, she's trying to basically relaunch, will continue her hip-hop rapping career we did speak this week, actually. She did talk a lot about her mentor on The X Factor, Sharon Osborne, and how actually Simon Cowell once said that she and Sharon were like two peas in a pod. And that, you know, if it hadn't been for Sharon sprinkling a little bit of fairy dust over her, she wouldn't be where she is now. Well, let us hope that her career goes in the direction that the majority want it to. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. That's where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. A couple of weeks back, reports suggested that the plans for an official egalitarian praying space at the Western Wall had been put on hold. This week, we learned that the Israeli government has told the nation's Supreme Court that it plans to expand and upgrade a space for non-Orthodox prayer at the southern section of the Western Wall near Robinson's Arch. This is just another subject that has caused much division in the community, including from several religious leaders here in the UK. I've been speaking to rabbis Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK and Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. And I started by asking Rabbi Shaw how he reacts to the idea of an official egalitarian praying space. Obviously, I am, always have been, a very proud Orthodox Jew and Orthodox rabbi. But at the same time, you don't see me decrying the existence of reform and liberal shores here in the UK. And, you know, if that's the way they want to worship, it's not for us to tell them how to do it. Obviously, in an orthodox shul itself, that would be wrong. To ask for an orthodox shul to allow a reform service to take place in the shul, that's not correct. And, and not the reform ever asked to do that. And they will not because they understand you can't do that. The Kotel is obviously an orthodox shul. The Kotel prayer space, the main prayer space, has been for since creation of state and well before then with the Mechitsu and obviously the services along orthodox lines. I don't believe the reform wanted to do reform services at that site. That would be wrong and would be offensive and that's not what happened. Who would it be offensive to? To the orthodox shul that's there at the moment. In the same way, you wouldn't expect Hendon United Synagogue to allow a reform rabbi to come in and start running a service in Hendon United Synagogue. It's not correct. What was suggested and what happened was why can we not have another part of the 
that area, the, the southern wall, the Kotel, to set up away from that an egalitarian quote-unquote shul, where you could come to, to have a different type of service, officiated by reformed clergy, and so on and so forth, mixed prayer services, and that is exactly what happened. It was set up by Naftali Bennett, who himself is an Orthodox Jew, a religious Jew, but he believed there was a need to find a way that they could also express themselves in prayer. And again, it's it's a different part of the wall. It's not seen by the the main part of the Kotel, which, by the way, Everyone is welcome to. Reformed Jews are welcome and liberal Jews and non-Jews are welcome to pray at the Kotel, the, the main site, but obviously not as a, you know, their own service, but as part of the, the greater whole that is praying there. And the same way I presume an Orthodox Jew could go across to the Reform site and pray, but they would not feel a need to because, again, why, why would they? But it's, the idea is, I think here is, everyone has a place to pray. What is the problem? Okay, but then I would say that potentially some people would argue the problem is that if you say that where the main space is at the moment, that everybody knows the, obviously the the, the famous part of the Kotel where people go to pray, that's what in essence have just been has just been said is you can pray here as long as you pray our way. And isn't the truth is that some people want to pray in different ways, and that's what the argument is. Oh, agreed. But again, in the same way, we have to say what is the the, the Kotel itself? What Israel? That site has been run along orthodox lines in terms of that is the, you know, there is a mechitza. Again, I would say it's the highest common denominator, meaning if you didn't have a mechitza, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable to, 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 to pray there. This way, everyone feels comfortable. And by the way, it's not our way or no way. For example, you know, there is Hasidic groups praying there. There are more modern groups praying there. I am sure that if a reform group went there, a reform rabbi with his congregation, and wanted to kind of in the corner of the kotel have a little service, no one's going to say anything because that's them having their private service. What we can't have is is, is a mixed service at the Kotel because there's a, well, there's a big machitza running down the middle because that's the way we keep everybody happy. But I think if people want to have, and I, again, I've, people go in and do their own prayers, have little own prayer groups, that's not a problem. But if you want to actually change the whole nature of what that site does, that's going to sort of offend a whole slew of people as well because that's the way orthodoxy prays. We pray with a division between male and female. Isn't the truth that the world has moved on in terms of the way that men and women are viewed and everything like that since, obviously, the inception of the Kotel? And, and does it not mean that it's, it's not excluded from the way that times change and progress? Is this not just progression? Well, again, that's the whole, the whole discussion about how does Judaism progress as the world uh, changes. And that's the basic dis- disagreement between the Orthodox world and the non-orthodox world obviously the modern orthodox world which i'm a, a, a sort of a, a rabbi very much a part of in terms of mizrahi and, and what i've done in the u.s as well and that's a synagogue yes we absolutely see the world has changed and therefore we have involvement in secular studies involvement in women's education involvement in the wider culture obviously involvement in supporting the the modern state of israel but all within the bounds of torah and halacha torah and halacha clearly state that when we are praying we pray separately. What is the division needed between male and female? Again, that varies depending on where you're praying and so on and so forth. But the classic Orthodox shul around the world, and you, you would not find one that is not this, in the main prayer space, there is a division. Men and women do not pray together. That is how it has been. And whether or not the world may have changed, we believe in Torah, we believe in Halakha, and we believe that in the 21st century, we are still very much in need of a separate prayer space in order to focus our prayers and so on and so forth. And that is, that is Orthodox practice globally, not just at the Kotel. 
Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK. Well, now let's hear the thoughts of Chair of the Liberal Rabbinic Conference, Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. I started by asking Rabbi Goldstein, what does an egalitarian space mean to him? Me personally, um, I've always had a really kind of experience at the Kotel, especially recently, because I've been going with my wife and my two daughters. And it means that when I go to the Kotel, I'm actually not able to be with my family, to actually experience it with them. I've never had a spiritual experience with my family. And that disturbs me. It means that the Kotel actually decreases the value within my Judaism and within the Judaism of my family. But at the same time, if something has been a certain way for a many number of years, isn't the question that's going to be on a lot of people's lips that who are we to start changing that? I totally understand that uh, that point of view. I think that the way that our world and the way that Judaism actually needs to progress, and there is no reason why it cannot, means that for Israel, the state of Israel, it needs to seriously ask the questions, are we for all Jews or are we just for certain numbers of Jews? Well, the state of Israel as a whole is obviously for all Jews, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the more religious elements of it, the Kotel, can start being adjusted as we see fit. It's very interesting because the mix in Israel between state and religion means that uh, actually progressive Jews have always been discriminated against. And this actually is symbolic. For me, actually, the Kotel isn't even the most important issue. The more important issues around whether progressive rabbis are able to conduct conversions, whether status of our Jews is recognized within Israel, whether our rabbis get paid, whether synagogues are built by the state as orthodox ones are, there is discrimination in Israel against progressive Jews. And the Kotel, in a way, is symbolic and been used as a symbol to highlight these problems. Let me give you the comparison given by Rabbi Shaw that we've just heard in this program. And that was that he said that as far as the Kotel is concerned, imagine it along the lines of an orthodox shul. One would not go into an orthodox shul and expect a reform or a liberal service to take place. In essence, the Kotel could be seen as an orthodox shul area, and therefore it wouldn't be right to expect a liberal or a progressive service to take place there. That's not to say that they shouldn't take place at all, but just not there. How does that sit with you? They used to only be traditional communities, and traditional communities had men and women separate. In fact, many women didn't even go to shul. Today, the reality is in every town and in every city around the world, the Jewish world, including in Israel, there is an Orthodox synagogue and there is a Mazorti, a conservative, a reform or a liberal synagogue as well. The reality of the Jewish world has changed and that needs to change at the Kotel as well. So if there was an area dedicated to egalitarian services, as they're calling it, then would that be good enough rather than for want of a better word, tampering with the Kotel that everyone knows at the moment, the sort of the famous space where everyone goes to pray at the moment, rather than adjusting that, would you be happy with knowing that there was a separate egalitarian area or do you actually want to see the change happen at the main part of the Kotel? I think there is a place for an Orthodox synagogue. This has always been my point of view and the progressive point of view as well. No one is trying to do Orthodox Judaism out of being. What we are asking is for a progressive Judaism to be alongside it. And just finally, 
Do you think that anyone is going to come out winning from this? And by that, I mean, surely there's always going to be a situation where someone, somewhere along the lines in Judaism, whether it be from the orthodox end, whether it be from the more progressive end, someone is going to be unhappy with decisions made and with layouts. How do you think that we find that middle ground? I think it's a fantastic question because, of course, we're Jews and uh, we do like a good argument, don't we? And now I don't consider that we'll ever stop arguing, but the argument is really important to have and for us to keep on having that and uh, keeping open dialogue amongst ourselves. When we shut ourselves off, that is where the problem lies. But in the state of Israel, there is a very distinct problem, and that is because religion and state are not divided out. There are too many orthodox political parties, and that's a real problem in Israel. And it does mean that with the nature of the political system, that until that changes, unless that changes, governments will always be going backwards and forwards, looking to have favour with orthodox political parties. Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue, also the chair of the Liberal Rabbinic Conference, speaking to me there about the news that the Israeli government plans to expand and upgrade the non-Orthodox prayer space at the southern section of the Western Wall. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This episode is sponsored by Little Big Leaders and is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and corporate presenter Jeremy Jacobs. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about, the Western Wall. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Lance Foreman, owner of H. Foreman & Son, about the UK's oldest smoked salmon factory being given protected status. But first, Tisha B'Av is fast approaching. This year, it falls on the 1st of August. But what does it actually mean? Rather than me sit here and read out the Wikipedia definition, it's best to hear from someone in the know, Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. They will be marking the annual day of mourning accordingly, and arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Rabbi Lawrence to find out more. Kate started by asking Rabbi Lawrence, what is Tisha B'Av? Tisha B'Av is the day in the calendar where we commemorate the destruction of both the first and second temples. It's considered the saddest day in the whole of the Jewish year. Why is it so sad? I mean, this this took place 3,000 years ago. Why are we still so sad about it? For the Jewish people, the loss of our sovereignty, of our land, the being forced into exile was the ultimate punishment that God had promised in the admonitions within the Torah. And therefore, it was a recognition that we had totally failed in our obligation to revere him and to live decently amongst ourselves. We're told that the reason that the second temple was destroyed inter alia was sinat chinam, a lack of love for each other. Gratuitous hatred is the translation between ourselves. So we had failed in our spiritual and interpersonal responsibilities to the extent that God withdrew his protection from us. And the consequence of that was the loss of sovereignty of our land, but also being cast into exile and being forced to live amongst pagans with the risk of loss of our spiritual tradition. 
Kinloss does something special normally most years to involve the community and to keep everybody involved in some way. What's on the programme this year? What are you allowed to reveal to us? There's a bit of a conundrum. We try to be miserable on Tisha B'Av, and certainly a long fast in the summer is pretty miserable. And the extent of the misery is on Tisha B'Av itself, we're not supposed to study Torah during the evening and into the middle of the day. And you're not even supposed to greet people and say hello to them. So the idea of having a program is a little bit of a self-contradiction because you're bringing people together. On the other hand, you're bringing people together to be miserable together, but also to look beyond tragedy into hope. At the end of Tisha B'Av and even in the Kinot, the dirges that we read, we look forward to a temple being rebuilt. And so this year, our program is in two parts. We have got a play written by Catherine Cressman Taylor. It's a short novella written by her, but it's in the form of letters. So we've got two actors who will be reading these letters. The play is called Address Unknown. It is a very, very moving scenario that she wrote in 1938, so it's just ahead of the Shoah, where two friends, art dealers, a German Jew and a German non-Jew are corresponding with each other as the Nazi stringencies against the Jews are beginning to come into play. So she's writing before we even knew of the Shoah. And indeed, as part of American propaganda in 1942, the Americans made a Hollywood movie of this exchange of letters between the art dealers in order to show the lack of humanity. We are going to be looking at that. We're going to be having a reading with two wonderful Rada actors in the afternoon. And the the focus on that is our responsibilities to each other and how we can easily drift apart and get caught up in our own worlds and ideologies and lose the sense of sensitivity one to another. It's part of the anti-Sinat Chinam message of Tisha B'Av. At the nub of the play is the disappearance of the Jewish art dealer's daughter. I don't want to go further into that without... We don't want to spoil it, do we? ...reveal the whole plot. You can read it. You can get it on Amazon. It's a a good short play. After that, we have got the much more harrowing real-life story of the loss of a son, Rabbi Dr. Naftali Moses, who is a medical historian and medical ethicist lost his son in the 2008 Merkaz Harav, a terrorist incident. And he's going to be talking about the idea of personal loss and also the idea of personal coping with trauma. True to the message of Tisha B'Av, we are looking at loss, trauma, coping, and building forwards. But all in a community way. As a, as a community together and indeed our ability to rebuild after trauma, after destruction, was the ability to come together. And so it is appropriate that we, that we end the fast together. And as it's a Kinloss event, is it only Kinloss community who can come or can others who are 
who want to be involved in Tishabov in some way, are they welcome to join? Everybody is welcome. As many people who want to come, certainly the opportunity to hear Rabbi Dr. Moses is something which, over the Shabbat beforehand, he will be presenting on his medical ethics background. The opportunity to come and hear him and hear his story, it's really important that we Jews in the world today understand what is really going on. So everybody should come. The play itself, also a unique opportunity to hear it live at Kinloss. Everybody is welcome, but mindful of what I said before, it's a day where we don't particularly greet everybody. So we won't, you won't have the same warm, friendly faces encouraging you in as you might have at other times of the year. And just to be clear, there's no charge. No charge at all. All welcome. And we will be starting with Mincha in the afternoon at 6.30 and Address Unknown will be following that at 7.15 and the Morning Under Glass presentation by Rabbi Naftali Moses will be at 8.15. Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue reminding us of the relevance of Tisha B'Av, which this year falls on the 1st of August. If you would like any more information on the events that Rabbi Lawrence has just spoken about, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Remember to tune in to our live stream every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. It's just one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, if you are a fan of smoked salmon, you've more than likely heard of the oldest salmon factory in the UK, H. Foreman & Son. The East London business has just been given a protected status. To find out more about it, community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to the owner of H. Foreman & Son, Lance Foreman. Diana started by asking Lance to tell us exactly what their new protector's status actually means. Well, it's a form of a protecting either foods or drinks. It's organised by the EU, or I suppose licensed in a way by the EU, where they provide protection to stop other people copying those foods. So, for example, an English sparkling white wine producer can't call their wine champagne because they're not producing it in the Champagne region of France, and they may or may not be using method champenoise. So when we apply for London Cure Smoked Salmon, what it does, it, it protects London Cure so that nobody can produce it unless they're producing it in the three boroughs of Hackney, Tower Hamlets or Newham, and according to the methods that have been set out and which we've been using for over 100 years. Does that mean that somebody else within those three boroughs could produce it as long as they were using the same methods, but not necessarily using your name? This is a London-wide, well, not London-wide, but it, certainly as far as those three boroughs are concerned, an award for London rather than just H. Foreman and Son. However, at this moment in time, we are the only people that do produce according to those methods in those three boroughs. Years ago, it should be said... This is the home of salmon smoking. And indeed, we had to demonstrate that there was a history of smoking salmon in those three boroughs to achieve the PGI status for London Cure Smoked Salmon. And I gather you had a fairly long battle, or was it not a battle? The application process, it seems awfully long to me. It was four years, I gather. 
It did take four years, but from what I understand from DEFRA, that's actually not bad going. There are some people that have been applying for PGI status for considerably longer than that, seven, eight years and so on. So the process involved us applying and getting approval from the British government first. Once it had been approved, which itself took two years, they then put it forward to the EU to approve and it has to go out for public consultation, not just in the UK, but in the EU too, to make sure that nobody has any objections to it. And you're no stranger to battling with the government, if I remember, because of the battle you had around the time of the Olympics with H. Foreman's own site. Absolutely. That was a battle about our eviction from our former premises, which turned out to be located on what was to become the running track of the Olympic Stadium. And at the time, it was interesting, at the time we were getting offers from other boroughs and cities around the country. You know, Peterborough, I remember, the, I think it was the mayor of Peterborough sent me a postcard saying, why don't you come and relocate to Peterborough? But of course, had we moved out of those three boroughs, we would never have been able to get this PGI status because... This is the traditional home of salmon just, smoking just in the UK. A lot, a lot of people think that smoked salmon is this ancient Scottish tradition, but actually it was a Jewish trade that grew up in the late 19th century in London's East End. And part of our applying for PGI status was to re-educate the public about the origins of this great food. Indeed, although the actual fish itself is Scottish, isn't it? It is. And and indeed, it was the marriage of Scottish salmon being cured in London that made it this great food. Because when people like my great grandfather, who started smoking salmon back in 1905, and indeed others before him, when they first started smoking salmon, they didn't even realize there was a salmon native to the UK. So they would ship over salmon from the Baltic, and they would smoke it just for their own community. But it was only when they went to the fish market at Billingsgate and saw these wonderful wild salmon coming down from Scotland. Scotland every year and thought, well, why don't we just try smoking them? It'll be a lot easier than uh, shipping uh, fish from the Baltic in barrels of salt water. Uh, And the end product was absolutely outstanding. And they thought, wow, this is fantastic. Maybe other people are interested in this amazing food. And they started hawking it around to sort of fine dining restaurants and delicatessens. And people fell in love with it. And it took off. And I would say that it became perhaps Britain's first ever homegrown gourmet food. How is H. Foreman going to gain from having a PGI status now? Well, the reason we applied for PGI status wasn't the normal reason to protect our food, because I can't honestly say there's a whole raft of smoked salmon producers out there trying to copy what we do. Most of them are trying to compete at the cheap end of the market, mass producing smoked salmon. What we do is exactly the same technique as we've been doing for over 100 years. It's an artisan craft. Everything is done by hand. And what we're trying to do is to re-educate the public about smoked salmon, because you don't have to go back that far, maybe 15 or 20 years, you just mention those two words, smoked salmon. People go, ooh, smoked salmon. It was a big deal. You know, it was something special. It was a treat and so on. And now it has become, well, the most heavily promoted food by supermarkets, particularly at Christmas time, because it has this perception of high value, but it can be produced very, very cheaply. And so much of what's produced is just really dreadful. And we meet consumers so so often and they say they really don't like smoked salmon. And that's because so much of it is just very slimy and very smoky. And that is not how smoked salmon is meant to be. For us, it was about trying to re-educate the public and get them to understand that this great food 
still is a great food if it's produced properly. And is London Cure going to be remarketed and rebranded now it's got the PGI status or not? Well, hopefully people will become familiar with London Cure smoked salmon as a particular type of food rather than just smoked salmon itself. And my hope is that we, for example, as a, as a company, will be able to meet with restaurateurs, particularly in London, and say to them, look, if your restaurant was in the Champagne region of France, you wouldn't dream of putting Prosecco on your menu. <laughs> and if your restaurant was in the Parma region of Italy, you'd be embarrassed to serve Iberico ham. Well, you're in London and you should be using London Cure Smoked Salmon. Thank you very much, Lance. That was fascinating. Thanks so much and well done. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm salivating now. Lance Foreman, owner of H. Foreman and Son, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there about the UK's oldest smoked salmon factory having been given protected status. Okay, just ahead of our Jewish schmooze, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Suzanne Edwards is director from Little Big Leaders and joins me in the studio now. Suzanne, welcome back to The Jewish Views. For those who might not know, just remind us what exactly it is that Little Big Leaders do. Little Big Leaders runs the summer school just up at London Academy and Rickmansworth School. We run it from Monday the 24th of July through to the 11th of August and we also have the facility up at Bushy Academy where it runs from the 31st of July through to the 18th of August. We provide children with phonics and writing and also the maths and English from 9 o'clock through to 1 o'clock of some really strong learning. Now, I can see in front of you this week that we've got loads of what looks like really fun activities. So can you talk about some of the things that you've brought into the studio with you and how they play a part in Little Big Leaders? Yeah, we have here a phonics board. It's a phonics game and we're teaching the children to learn the sounds in a word. So some of the pictures here that you can see, one's of a sun, one's of a pig and also one's of a hen. So the sounds that we're teaching the students would be sounds like s, a, n, which when blended together create the word sun. So we mix them up on a table and then the students have to locate the s for s for the word sun, sun. So each time the students looking for those sounds and learning the sounds and learn them in a word. And hopefully at the same time by doing activities like this almost takes the learning element out of it and actually makes it more fun for them. Yeah, the children don't even realise sometimes that they're actually learning and the volume of which they're learning because it's all about having fun and what we do is incorporate loads of games, especially for the younger students because as we know, children learn through play and once they're playing, learning those sounds, they learn absolutely loads and their reading just accelerates. And what's the kind of age range that you're looking at for your pupils? Well, for the reading programme, we take children from the age of three, three and a half, up to around about five years of age. Sometimes we take them older, depending on the circumstances surrounding the child. It could be that mum may have had cancer or suffered a tumour and she's been in and out of hospital and not been able to get the child to go to school on a regular basis. So there are special circumstances where children join us at different or slightly older age groups for the reading programme. There are going to be people listening who are going to want more information on Little Big Leaders. Where do they go and what do they do? If you'd like to find out more information in terms of our phonics and writing course or our maths and English course, by all means, give us a call now on 0203 637 6266, which is a 24-hour 
answering service or send us an email to info at littlebigleaders.com. You are listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today are journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and corporate presenter Jeremy Jacobs. Two Jeremys. Mm. The subject today is based on what we heard with Phil earlier on. The Israeli government plans to expand and upgrade the non-Orthodox prayer space at the southern section of the Western Wall. This is a stark contrast to reports a couple of weeks ago that suggested the plans have been put on hold. The question is, who's right on the Great Wall debate? Those in favour of equality or those in favour of tradition? Jeremy Havadi, let's start with you. Who do you believe is right in this debacle and why? I favour the argument more in favour of equality. And that's simply because I think that this space... You know, the Western Wall, Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is holy for all Jews. Or at least it, it's, it may not be something that all Jews gravitate towards, but it's a space that I think all Jews should be able to go to, regardless of their denomination. They should be able to go there. They should be able to experience the vitality of, of where they are. They should be able to pray as they see fit. And I think, therefore, all, it's, all this is doing is simply recognising that orthodoxy, which has obviously dominated Israel's religious structures since the founding of the state cannot really have a monopoly anymore. There should be space and recognition given for other denominations who wish to access that place. Do you believe that, Jeremy Jacobs? Do you agree with that? Yes, I do, but for different reasons. And what I don't like is this, this, whole, this whole separation with women as well. You know, if I, can, I mean, I would like to see, I would like to go further than Jeremy. I think it's quite right and quite wrong that the orthodoxy should be all we all we see is these these people praying, and I think they, 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 there's, so much, there's too much domination in that in that part of the world. Everybody should be there. I don't know if the denominations are the right word, but it, Jeremy. But, but basically, well, hang on a minute, Tony. You know, the point is, you know, I I think women should be there as well, and it should be mixed. Yeah, no, no, but I'm not mixed. Not 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 separate women. This and separate. What I was going to say was that this has been a tradition for thousands of years, even before the state of Israel was formed they they separated and men and women have been separate I, i'm not disagreeing with you but i'm just trying to put the point forward that, that this is how it sure. is and does it make a difference does it make any difference i mean it, it, if i go to jerusalem and i go to the wall and i might say a prayer or two yes i'm united synagogue no i'm not orthodox but they don't question me because I just go down there and I just do whatever. I would suggest because you're because you're a bloke. Yeah, but my wife goes and she doesn't okay. get questioned either. You know, oh, so okay. so do we need this other completely separate bit to say, well, this is reform or progressive? Or no, that's whatever. ridiculous. But this separate that's, that's bit is going to allow women and men together. I take it. Ah, that I don't know. Yeah, uh, I'm getting a nod from our yes, okay. so that's, girl, that's yes, the answer to that particular. Yeah, so that answers Jeremy's argument. question. I, kind of, I think the whole wall should be mixed. Is what the point I'm why? Making. Well, why shouldn't it be? I mean, yeah, but then you're, then you're then because you're it's a, because it's a 21st century. But then you're separating the the, the Orthodox. You'll have the argument from the other way round, then, won't you? They'll say, well, yeah, we're you're, Orthodox. exactly. You're there. Surely everybody them. has a right to be either uh, Orthodox or. Right liberal or, or reform or yeah. and the orthodox should be allowed to have it done in their way and the liberal and reform should be allowed to do it and what about way? the non-jew that wants to go there exactly he, they, go? which yeah. they do of course yeah. they go down to the wall 
Should no, be, it should be open. Open. I said, this, this whole, this, this, I don't like this, this whole sort of... Our non-Jews are allowed to go to the Orthodox end of the They war. do, yeah. I, I, I know people that have been to Israel and they've I gone down to the I suppose you, you're not asked they, to they wear a whether you're a Jew or not. They wear exactly. a kippah. They don't, ask, they don't ask to see your operation. You yeah, but you can have non-Jews going, going, going to Jewish, Jewish services. Yes. Right, not as long as they cover their heads. What difference That's does it right. make? I I'm not know. saying they're going there to pray, they're going there to experience but, it. But, Jeremy Avadi, you, you more or less pointed this out, that in fact the history of the wall is so huge and so old that there is a great point from the Orthodox point of view, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Look, obviously tradition has reigned in terms of how it's been laid out, in terms of you know the separation of men and women and in terms of uh, how it's been governed, if you like. And... This is simply in a way challenging that and it's it's recognising that we don't want to alienate people who revere that site and who want to go there and who want to who want to visit and who want to pray. And they simply need a I guess a space that actually will recognise their perspective. And if that's if it's doing that, then I think I can understand it. Otherwise people will, may well feel sort of rather alienated in a way when they go. Which there. they have done. Up till now I think they felt alienated. So what's going to happen now, do you think? Do you think that the are people are going to fight against it or are going to accept it? Well, I honestly think that Orthodox, yes, the, the Orthodox establishment will fight against it, just as they'll try and fight against every attempt at somehow removing their jurisdiction over Israel's religious life. I, 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 can, I can definitely see a long-standing rearguard action of one kind or another, but ultimately, you know, if, if, I, if this I've is what had, the state sorry, wants, it should. I'm just going to interrupt because I've, had, I've had a text in from someone called Between. It says Between Wanderings. This, this is the name they've given. It says on Twitter, egalitarian access to the wall is tradition. The segregated wall is a relatively recent novelty. Ah, well, there you go. So, so I was wrong. I apologise. No, it's like, no, accepted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but again, it proves my point. It, it, you know, it, it's, have we got enough problems in Israel and as Jews across the world? Don't we have enough problems just sort of squabbling over a wall? It should be for everybody. Not just, just you know, not just the few, if I can quote. Arthur. It's because it's the holiest site, isn't yes. it? In, in but our it, religion, exactly, and it's and been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and therefore, surely, whether you are whatever sort of Jew you are, if you go to the wall, it's it's respect to the past that you do what the wall, if you if it were real. Am I, am, am I right in thinking that when that wall was when the temple was there, that the the women didn't go in to the temple. It was a, it was a male bastion, wasn't it? Well, I noticed as I would think it was. The yes. women didn't probably didn't, didn't go to synagogue no, at all because no, it was yes. their job to stay at home and yes. cook and make a home, make the Shabbos meal, right? make the Shabbos sure. meal. And, and, yeah. and we're sort of still still there. To, well, we are in some, and some, in some respects. And I just yes. think we yes. I think we have to move on. Is a, is a point I'm making. Mm. Otherwise, we'll just, you know, you can't live in the past. And I, but I'm dedicated yeah, to they are making a point. They are giving part of the wall to people. Uh, yeah, who but think how much like is it, that. by the way? How much? How, how, I don't know, because it? I'm not there and I wasn't, I wasn't okay. privy to it. If it was like, if it was like 50%, it'd be fine. Got yeah. another message here oh. from someone called Jack, who says Hi, Jack. there needs to be a recognition that this issue is one of political posturing and not solely about religion. Bibi has Haredim in his cabinet. It's primarily about politics. <laughs> Which uh, that's a quite a good point. Understandable. That's quite a good yeah. point. Because in actual fact, I mean, if you think about Israel as a whole, the Israelis are probably the least religious of all Jews oh, in the world, absolutely. aren't they? Someone once asked me if I if we had to go to Israel because of whatever's happening within the world, how would you be? And I said I'd probably be even less religious than I am now. 
You know, because I do go to shul. I am a shul goer. Oh, right. Think, okay. If I was in Israel, whenever I'm in Israel, I don't feel the need to to go to synagogue. Because, yes. Because I'm there. You're it's, there. It's yeah, you're, you're living the dream. But Israel Could generally it? is so secular, yeah. isn't it? You know, so why should the war not be secular? Exactly. Well, but, secular, but in a sense, though, doesn't this all tap into a bigger debate, a much bigger debate about the extent to which Judaism, and particularly Orthodox Judaism, should be at the heart of, of national life? Because... The, the, as I say, the Orthodox establishment have, have dominated in debates about marriage and divorce and burial and so on. And there is a movement of, of, of Jews who are not Orthodox, and let's mm. face it, that's the majority, who are saying, well, hold on a second, isn't it time that maybe we can challenge their stranglehold on these civil issues mm. and start to recognise that maybe other denominations have their way of doing things sure. and, and that should change? And you, this, I think, taps into all of yes. that. Do you think it should, the rule then should be for the masses rather than the few? Yes. Should they Completely. make a decision rather than the few? But it's well, interesting, well, isn't it? The masses being, isn't that, the masses isn't being that, isn't that democratic? Yeah, well, the only, yeah, throughout the world, the only Jewish sect that is growing is, in fact, the Haredi. Correct. Yes. So, I mean, that points the other way, doesn't it? Well, not yet, but yeah. I, 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 I mean, there's no there. middle centre in this country. There's no... The, Judaism in this country was very much the middle centre and sensible, if you like and the way that most people are. But no longer is this the case. But then if, less if, and less people are going to Orthodox synagogues, less and less people are going to Reform synagogues, less and less people are going to Liberal synagogues, yeah. and more and more people are going to Ultra-Orthodox But then, but then maybe the war should then be for the Haredi, if they're the, they're the largest population. Mm. Well, that's what I'm suggesting. Well, they're not. Yeah, they're, but, but, they're not. but they're not in Israel. Israel. No. Okay. That's the point. They're not in Israel. They're not here. Or anywhere else. Well, they're, they're growing. They're, they're the, growing. growing. Yeah. The other well, ones yeah, are fading well, it down. They certainly they have, have lots here. of children. You know. And it still comes... I'm, I'm certainly not a member of the Haredi, but it certainly seems to me that the war, because of its history, because it's all that remains of the temple and was built thousands of years ago, should still be treated as a deeply religious place. Hmm. I don't think anybody's actually disputing that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't, for example, want it to be turned into um, an entertainment place. Let's say cert- sure. certain certain times in the year, you know, you can go there and you can have have a party there, which has no religious significance. I think that we do need to respect it as a as a site of cardinal religious significance. The question is, should it be run according to the interests of just one denomination, or should it be open to the Jews of all religious? persuasions right across the spectrum that in, in a sense is the issue and i think well surely the answer is what they have done is that there's one part of it should be for mm. people of less religious mm. a- aspect and well actually they're not less religious in their view they're religious in their own way yes, mm. yes. but they should be separate from the ultra orthodox or the very orthodox mm. okay. and who should treat the war as the wall. And, and everybody should treat everybody with respect. With respect, with their own yes. respect. Yeah. But are they going to in, do that? That's all, very well, that's all very well in theory. What do we think of the comment that Andrew Shaw, Rabbi Andrew Shaw, made earlier on in the programme? He said you wouldn't go to a united synagogue and expect a reform or progressive service. Is it not the case that the Kotel could be seen as a sort of united or orthodox synagogue? Well, I say if you believe in, in tradition and it's, it should be run the way it's always been run, then I think your argument might be yes. But it's not in that sense a closed space with its own fixed rules. I mean, one could argue that it's it should be open to Jews of uh, of all denominations. denominations. Mm. Yeah. 
Which well, is exactly yeah, what's going to happen. There are rules there, but the rules have been man-made rules, mm. aren't they? So yes. if they can man-make a rule, then they can man-make okay. another rule. But we can go into that another time. Well, yes, we're going to have to because our time is up. But my thanks to our guest, journalist and author, Jeremy Havadi, and corporate presenter, Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. All the details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. We heard from him earlier on. This time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw of Mizrahi, UK. It started with a photograph. Earlier this week, an old school friend posted the school photograph of Northwest London Jewish Day School, 1977. A lot of us commented on the photo, and within 24 hours, one of the members of my class had set up a Facebook group of literally the whole class and we began discussing, commenting, memories coming flooding back. People I hadn't seen or spoken to for gone 30 years were debating and discussing things like we were old friends, which in essence we were. And it made me realize how vital and crucial those early years of our life are. We come to the end of the book of Bamidbar, and the last parasha, which we read this Shabbat, Maaseh, begins by telling us, Elam Maaseh B'nai Yisrael. These are the journeys of the children of Israel. All of us have our Jewish journeys. But when they begin, when they start in those primary school years, I was blessed at Northwest with my friends who were filled with joy, celebration, encouragement, and basically a Judaism that was alive and has left me with such positive memories. Not just me, but so many of my friends who commented on the Facebook group this week. If we want to have a future of Judaism, we've got to make sure that our children embrace and love their Judaism. Those journeys don't start when you're 15 or 20 or 25. They start when you're five or 10 years old, giving our children positive, enjoyable, meaningful, inspirational Jewish experiences from a young age will guarantee those journeys will carry on for a long, long time. Just trying to think, listening to Rabbi Shaw's thought for the week there, where my Jewish journey would have I suppose, officially started. Now, of course, like most boys, it would have started at the age of eight days old. And we know what we're talking about. But in terms of when I actually remember it, I guess it would have been going to Cheder on a Sunday, probably against what I would have rather have been doing on a Sunday, but all the same. And I guess now I do recognise how important it was in building the foundations, teaching me about the religion that I now know and, of course, love. So thank you very much to Rabbi Andrew Shaw there from Mizrahi UK for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Rabbi Andrew Shaw and Rabbi Aaron Goldstein, talking about the Western Wall debacle. Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence talking about Tisha B'Av. Lance Foreman from H. Foreman and Son. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to listen to all previous episodes as well. This episode of The Jewish Views is sponsored by Little Big Leaders. It is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.